welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast and the first episode of 2023. This is episode number 382, and our guest is Toby Boudreaux. He is the deer and elk coordinator for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. He had joined us previously to talk about wolves, uh, wolf hunting, wolf management in the state of Idaho, and that was a couple of years ago. And we wanted to get Toby back on the podcast and really We went through a ton of topics as it relates to Idaho, hunting in Idaho, uh, tags and opportunities, the status of different uh, game animals, different hunting units and zones. We covered a ton in this episode, including some of the recent problems that occurred with non-resident tag sales um, that many of you are probably very familiar with and perhaps even frustrated by. We've talked a bit about that on the podcast as well. So, We really appreciated Toby's time and willingness to get on here and go through such a wide variety of topics. And I know that if whether you're an Idaho resident, a faithful non-resident hunter, or someone who is perhaps new to considering hunting Idaho, no matter where you fall on that, there's a lot to take away in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, guys, it would help us tremendously if you share the show with a friend. Uh, we don't advertise. We don't do any promotional stuff like that. This show grows by your word of mouth, um, and we certainly appreciate your support in that. And as always, if you have questions for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for that link in the show description that says leave us a message. But right now, let's dive right into this conversation with Toby. My name is Toby Boudreau, and I am the statewide deer and elk coordinator for Idaho Fishing Game. Yeah, it's great to have you on. We uh, chatted prior, and I'll leave a link to that uh, prior episode in the show description if listeners want to go check that out. But you mentioned deer and elk coordinator. Um, let me throw a question at you right away because it just popped to mind. Is there so changes with Idaho? and tags a, a few years ago you know it changed from being just kind of statewide for non-resident to being more specific to manage elk tags for non-residents within zones on deer it's not zone specific but actually unit specific so it, this is broad but can we kind of start there why is that important why are elk tags for non-residents allocated by zones which is a collection of units and then deer tags allocated by unit specifically? That's a great question. I would guess, um, you know, in 1999, we switched to um, zone management for elk and kept, um, you know, deer tags as they always were. You know, we have 99 game management units and 79 of those actually have some general hunting in them. Uh, some of it might be just archery only, but uh, statewide. So um, in 2020, we did, I guess to back up a little bit, in 2020, we did a, a statewide mule deer plan. And we also did, uh, as part of that, a survey of mule deer and white-tailed deer hunters, actually, because uh, we wrote the white-tailed deer and the mule deer plan basically um, at the same time. And one of the biggest um issues with hunters was hunter crowding and uh, one of the ways that you know you can adjust hunter crowding um obviously is uh, you know redistribution um and and limiting hunters by certain geographical areas and it had been obviously um the topic came up from the public survey but it's also been a perennial topic with the commission, you know, probably for at least the last decade about, you know, hunters, mostly resident hunters complaining that, you know, their area was overcrowded and congested. So Idaho Fishing Game began the process of sort of getting some background human dimensions information about, about hunting, hunter crowding after the, the deer and el- the the deer surveys, the deer hunter surveys. So, we 
um, actually uh, have a human dimensions professor at the University of Idaho, uh, Dr. Kenneth Wallen, uh, anyways, that uh, we actually helped fund his position and he is helping us um, do the human dimensions work. And so we started out in, by doing background information about hunter crowding and diving deeper into the into the questions for hunters about you know the difference between hunter crowding on private and public land um and doing uh hunter crowding you know questions um by hunter by by game management unit um all, all throughout the state and um we giving updates obviously to the commission on the results of these surveys and and you know the commission um really desired to sort of figure out ways to um to change the distribution of, of non-resident hunters um you know obviously idaho uh if you didn't know has a fixed number of elk tags that non-residents can buy and a fixed number of deer tags non-residents can buy and uh you know one of the challenges was the the licensing system at the time uh you know wasn't powerful enough to you know a decade ago to even consider the sort of you know change in distributions um throughout the state so uh the commission went through the process of uh, once we got a new vendor that uh allowed them to limit um by game management zone how many non-resident hunters um even for the ones that were um you know and this didn't include cap zones and then also to redistribute the or to limit the number of tags being issued in um game game management units for deer hunting for non-residents and basically there was a backcountry limit and then a front country limit um based on previous history of non-resident use and that so that all came together in basically setting non-resident limits for deer tags in each game management unit i guess to get to your question mark um we've never had deer zones um and um it was you know the the um uh, it was the wish of the commission to um limit um by by game management unit and that's the system that was developed um was to was to limit the number of tags by game management unit and uh, the lowest percentage being um 10 percent um with backcountry units um taking a couple of years actually to get uh settled in but you know that's settled in at about 25 percent um oh i didn't realize that so it's 20 it was 25 percent of the traditional amount of hunters that was now limited to non-resident well yeah if i mean yeah. because a lot of backcountry units um as you well know were had a lot more non-resident than resident participation so it was mm. it was all it was always you know bumped back down so gotcha what is fish and games definition of a backcountry unit you, you know all the the wilderness units basically okay okay you know, the, the selway the lolo the frank church um those okay. those are what we consider backcountry okay and, and the commission had already made some other changes to like unit um 26 and 27 uh or, or previously with uh with changes in non-resident distribution um even before the the other um the wide the statewide effort came into play can you touch more than on the distribution and how percentages may vary on elk zones then yeah uh, i guess the the first thing is is that cap zones um weren't affected by those um they were um cap zones uh are already capped um there's already a uh, you know there and there's rule involving how cap zone non-resident distribution is like say there was a unit that used to have um you know before um 
before it was capped, you know, there was uh, 44% non-residents. When we capped it, we made it 35. And then the commission passed a rule that if percentage of non-residents was above 25, that they could re reduce it down to 25%. And, you know, that's, that's a good example of where the commission had already taken um, redistribution of tags to that, to that level at the zone. That's how it came out like that. Um, and other units, they looked at the historical levels and then, you know, set those appropriately. It's different depending on which zone you're talking about. Yeah. And that's based on the historical rate, essentially. Yeah. As long as it's not, as long as it wasn't too, too high. You mentioned, uh, I believe it was a professor you said in the studies of human dimension. Can you, I, I can make an assumption on what I think that means, but from a more academic or scientific perspective, what is the study of human dimension as it relates to this broader topic? So human dimensions is sort of the opinions and attitudes of, 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 of people. And you try to, um, you know, it's the, the study is, uh, you know, fascinating in, the, in regards to how you even word a question, you know, can elicit an answer one way or the other. So human dimensions uh, trained folks are trained to try to create the most unbiased questions to get the most pure answer. The, uh, you know, with our human dimensions work, um, we do random surveys of they're randomly chosen hunters um, that participate. And usually there is a percentage of non-residents involved in some of the human dimension surveys, but really it's about being able to quantify and in a repeatable manner, uh, hunters' opinions and attitudes about a myriad of questions. Uh, there are also uh, in human dimensions work, um, these questions that, uh, are considered what they, they call them or have been referred to as forced choice questions, where it's a series of questions that basically gets um, that a person could answer. And it basically um, is a series of, you know, uh, would you rather have this or this or this or this and go down through some choices and then what the end result of that of that uh, those questions are is what are the most important things to you? What as a hunter, you know, it's we did a forced choice question uh, back in 2007 when we did the mule, when we redid the mule deer plan in 2007, and what came out of it was you know it was questions like would you would you rather hunt a for a two point every year or a or a or a, a large mature four point every 10 years and kind of went down through a series of press questions and what the end result was for that question in 2007 was that really um going hunting every year was the most important thing to people in idaho um it it, it didn't matter about the size of the deer um the great thing about idaho hunting is that you know there are there are big deer in lots of places with general hunting opportunity uh, you don't have to draw a tag to get a really um, high quality mule deer. Um, so, so yeah, so those are the kinds of things that that human dimensions uh, folks do, and then they, um, you know, they develop the surveys, they analyze the data, and then uh, sort of come up with the conclusions and summarize what the current, uh, you know, state of hunters' opinions and attitudes about a variety of questions. Um, you know, you can ask, you know, it can be about deer hunting, it can be about uh, OHV use, uh, you know, they, anyways, that, and, and the science has come a long way probably in the last three decades uh, in how to get into the, the minds of the general hunters, because, you know, when you go out and you have a questionnaire online that you just let anybody answer, um, you know, it, you're going to get, um, you're, you're going to get one facet of the population that's going to get out there, get busy, answer it. Whereas if you get a random selection of hunters, then you get what is hopefully a more unbiased sort of compilation mm -hmm. of that, um, of their opinions.
Makes yeah, sense. I could see how that'd be a, a fascinating area of study in general, not just as it relates to hunting, but the kind of the psychology of all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is amazing stuff. So as we're recording this, it's, uh, it's late December, um, non-resident tags uh, for general elk and deer went on sale at the beginning of the month. Um, I'm curious from your, I don't, and again, I'm some of these questions, I don't know, I don't know how much level of involvement or expertise or direct influence you've had with them, but speak to what you can. When Idaho put the, call it the current process in place in terms of non-resident tags going on sale December 1st, which happened a, a few years ago. Do you have any insight as to why this, why that date was chosen? Why have next year's tags go on sale on December 1st in terms of just timing? That's a great question, Mark. Uh, the So non-resident tags for to hunt in Idaho have been on, have gone on sale on December 1st for, for several decades. Um, it, uh, it was, it was, you know, used to uh, be sort of a non-event. And the reason that December 1st was picked um, years and years ago was it gave people time to plan. If they were going to get in a deer tag, um, then, uh, you know, they knew on December 1st that they had a license and a deer tag for the following fall. So they could, they could plan on it. Um, and that's sort of the, that was sort of the mentality of, 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 and the thought process that went behind why December 1st was picked. And I guess, um, you know, I've, I've worked for the agency since 2005 and, you know, we've had our ups and downs on, on license sales, obviously, um, you know, the economic, uh, downturn in the late 2000s, 2007, eight, you know, we saw, Lots of tags being left on on the table, um, and it's important uh, to agencies all throughout the West, you know, because non-resident tag sales are a are a big uh, source of income. Through the years, I guess uh, you know we have uh, grown in popularity. Obviously, there's uh, people that want to come to Idaho that, that to want to hunt as non-residents, and we had on December first. We had about sixty-seven thousand people trying to buy products online, and we only have—we sold nearly twenty-seven thousand non-resident tags that day um, in a twelve-hour period. So it's uh, and and remember, there's about two hundred different non-resident deer and elk tags now that we've split up the state into game management unit and zone. So as the the details of December 1st happened, you know, we are, you know, we sincerely apologize for the delays and the frustration with this, with the system. Um, you know, we had anticipated and pl and planned uh, for those high demand, that high demand time. Um, and, uh, the, and it was overwhelmed. And I do know that, you know, leadership uh, from the department has, been in conversations with the vendor and uh, hopefully we can, well, I know we can do better. Um, hopefully that uh, we don't have a, you know, reoccurrence of that in the future. Yeah. The kind of next question is what is, what is the going on behind the doors discussions on how do we fix this in the future? Is the plan just stay with what it is and just make sure the system doesn't crash or are you guys contemplating different ways to get the tags to non-residents? That Steve, I don't know. Uh, I, okay. I know that they are. Uh, you know, they did have. They have uh, leadership has had conversations with the vendor, um, and uh, about what went on uh, that mm -hmm. day. Um, and I know that uh, you know they want to do better. Um, but as far as any changes to how that all happens, um, don't know. Yeah, I do not know. Is Idaho unique in this demand for tags, or is this across all Western states? I think that uh, tag demand is up over the, you know, throughout the West. Um, mm -hmm. I think that Idaho is unique in the fact that, you know, we have a uh, we, we we have an over the counter opportunity for people to buy tags. Um, 
which, you know, most states have gone to other systems, uh, mostly controlled hunt draws uh, for non-residents to to garner tags. So I think that we are unique in, in that respect that uh, we, we do still offer quite a bit of over-the-counter opportunity that and uh, and have a opening day uh, sale day for it. So yeah, yeah. Because is, is Colorado selling out of elk tags every year, or do they even have a cap? Well, they Mark, don't have do you a know? cap. No, they, they don't, don't have, have a, cap, a cap, so they can't sell out. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't. I'm just obviously aware of Idaho, but I'm not paying that much attention to the states that have non-resident over-the-counter sales. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I, I. Yeah, I don't know about Colorado, but uh, but yeah, they they definitely. Uh, they do sell a lot of elk tags. Yeah. And I do think this obviously is a, a new problem for fish and game, right? That's been created over the last, what, three, four years. I mean, the tags would have sold out in, at different times. Um, I mean, I, for as long as I've been hunting, which is like 2002, it's like I could go, I could be in late 39 archery and, and just go, oh, I want an extra non-resident tag. And, you know, November 20th, go pick one up. They were always available. Um but as you said, back in 07, 08, that, you know, tag sales were down. Um, and then what I'm trying to think 2016 or 17 when Cody and the guys came out and that was like the first year was like, oh crap, we got to go buy tags because there's only a hundred left or something like that. Um, and now it just keeps getting, obviously it's just to the point now where it sells out December 1st. So it's a, it is a, I think, um, important for people to understand that this is a new problem that you guys are facing. Right. Um, the, how, how to how to solve this problem of this insanely high demand that happens in a 12-hour period where for years and years and years it was you know it just, it just wasn't an issue yeah and i can like from a technical perspective that i mean that's my background in history it is as much as you can test and plan and prepare for things like the demand of sixty-seven thousand people trying to access a website at one time which is a once a year event uh there's things you can do to stress test systems and simulate traffic and find out where weak points are and all the infrastructure of databases and communications that go with that. Uh, I've been there, done that, used to have to do that. And it literally was for actually a very similar situation. Uh, It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to replicate that. Um, Sometimes despite your best planning and putting infrastructure and things like that in place, simulations of, an event like that aren't the same thing as the event. And so, uh, you know, it sounds like Idaho uses a vendor. So this isn't just Idaho's, you know, in-house IT infrastructure. And I'm not trying to answer that. And I have no idea who the vendor is, but I will say that it it's technology. Stuff can happen, especially under demand like that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, and obviously, you know, you know, we went through an extensive process to pick the vendor. Um, obviously, the vendor got to see under the hood of what Fishing Game does before they signed on to, you know, give us a request. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I'm, um, in the end analysis, uh, you know, um, it, it is it is hard to simulate um, stresses to the system like that. That was it's pretty 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 incredible. So let's talk a little bit about this broader picture that idaho has um it depends what language we're going to use but over the counter first come first served at least historically or that's the idea when there's not this crazy demand tags compared to something like a lottery compared to something that would involve preference points bonus points etc because the case can be made that in the last couple of years with a limited number of tags and enough demand that's going to exceed that availability in a short time frame, meaning it's all going to happen on December 1st for the most part. And the way that the queue works, so people getting access to a queue, um, getting assigned a random number, not being first come first serve in the sense that the first person who shows up doesn't get the lowest number. You could show up after someone and get a lower number to then be served first. So it's not first come first served. And it is this random assignment of a number in a queue. In a sense, it is a lottery. It's just kind of this one day lottery for those who choose to show up at that time, uh, which I think is a fair, a fair way to look at it. 
maybe speak to that a little bit, Toby, or like, this naturally leads itself into why Idaho doesn't have more of a quote unquote traditional lottery and has avoided things like preference points, bonus points, and had systems more similar to whether well, it's New Mexico where you enter and it's all fair. Everybody starts at the same place. There is no bonus points or, you know, on, on an extreme end on the other side, uh, something like Colorado where it's uh, it's true preference points. And, you know, Idaho's done neither, right? But in a sense, this queue does create a little bit of a, a lottery. I know that I just spit out a lot at you, but just high level speak to, you know, those ideas in whatever way you want to, whatever direction you want to take that. You know, I, I guess from my perspective, uh, you know, Idaho has um, seen themselves as a, as an opportunity um, for people to come hunt. Um, you know, obviously lottery systems, uh, whether it be pure lottery, bonus points or preference points, um, all have their drawbacks. And I guess, Mark, your, uh, your uh, characterization of the or description of this of the system and how it works in Idaho, um, you know, is is correct. It it's been brought up to the commission uh, prior to um, you know to discuss uh, you know bonus point systems and and preference point systems. Um, you know, obviously, we do have a lottery. We do have a pure lottery for our controlled hunt tags, um, which you know is is is. Good. I mean, obviously, there's just uh, Idaho and New Mexico and Alaska are the only three states uh, in the West that have uh, a pure lottery. And um, you look at other states uh, that have, you know, gone to different systems, and obviously, it 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 works for them. <laughs> I would disagree that it, it works for them in the sense that. <laughs> A lot of these states are, I don't know, I mean, they've got a serious problem on their hands. Yeah. But at some point, they're going to have to say, wipe away all points, start, like, I, there, there's a major issue that these are all, they're all going to have to face. And I don't know if it's five years or 20 years when they're going to do it, but they're going to piss off a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I, I know people that have gone, you know, in states that have preference points, you know, they've, they've gone as far as to travel to that state to take their version of hunter education to get one more point oh, yeah. right and, yeah. and still, uh there's still 300 people with max points um for you know x species and uh you know their chances of drawing because there's one tag per year are still um still slim well, yeah. yeah and and, yeah, I, and and you're right um you know obviously uh states have tweaked uh their systems over time um and it's probably, uh, you know, a, a result of, you know, problems with, with not drawing because obviously those systems, people believe that it's going to give them a better chance. And there's a great white paper um, and a white paper just means sort of a, an, an analysis uh, that was written um, for a commission workshop back in 2010. Uh, and it talked, it shows plain and simply the math behind it that basically if you can uh, make the giant assumption that no more people enter the lottery ever than uh, for a certain hunt, then yeah, you will get, uh, you know, you will get better chances of drawing at some point, but that, that assumption is violated mm -hmm. almost instantaneously because more people want to put in for it. Mm -hmm. And then you get the, the, the ever increasing uh, factor of point creep, which you know, I hear people, uh, you know, pulling their hair about out about point creep, and it's a reality. I mean, very much. Yeah, it's absolutely. We've. Um, I don't know who who at Idaho was the spearhead of resisting points, but they did a phenomenal job with it because it's. Uh, I'm very glad we don't have any system in place for that. I'm with you. <laughs> yep. No, I agree. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's a it's a broken system in many states and. You know, I look at exactly what you mentioned, Idaho, Alaska, New Mexico, and just if I look at that from a very casual non-resident hunter who wants opportunities, 
I understand when people talk about being rewarded rewarded for loyalty of applying continually over the years and et cetera. I get the argument. It just obviously creates too many problems and doesn't work. And I personally, again, just looking at this as a hunter, would rather say my loyalty does matter because I'm applying each year. I'm not getting points, but my name is going in the hat every year. And that alone is increasing my odds in a state such as New Mexico. Um, that's just a true lottery. So yeah, the point systems are are certainly certainly troublesome for sure. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just want to talk a couple unit specific things and Mark, I'm probably jumping through your notes, but um, Sawtooth, what's the status of elk and Sawtooth and being a capped zone and um yeah, what's your overall um, update of how the elk herd's doing there and the sawtooth as a whole? You know, uh, the sawtooth is uh, is is doing pretty well. Uh, we, um, you know, fly annual uh, compensation surveys on the elk there, which is um, not common uh, in the state, just to make sure and monitor that population closely. And and things mm-hmm. uh, seem to be doing quite well. Um, obviously, there are portions of the sawtooth zone that uh, behave differently and uh, um, you know we're, we're trying to work through that but I, I think uh, you know the sawtooth zone is is is, is doing well um, yeah, from a, from a from meeting objective it's you know it's, I, I would say that it's still uh, rebuilding to some extent walk me through the timeline like mid 2007-8 you guys basically capped the tags in there because of wolf predation was so high is that correct that the elk numbers were really down so yeah and i guess to step back um in the elk plan uh which actually we're we're redoing right now um we're doing um we'll have a product out to the public next november um to review uh anyways in the elk plan when a population shows indicates that there is um you know, it's declining. The first step in reducing opportunity is to cap it. And that mm-hmm. is basically to um, cap uh, residents, non-residents, and outfitted um, allocation, basically, in, in, the, in the zone. Okay. And um, that's the first level. And then if the population, and, and you do it at, you know, based on the the wildlife manager and the, you know, obviously the bureau's input, you cap that popula- that number of tags probably somewhere lower than it was previously, just because you want the elk population to grow. Um, as, as you move along through time, you're reassessing the, those numbers. And if the population comes up, uh, you can readjust those capped numbers up um you know obviously the smoky bennett is a good example of that zone got capped and then we took the cap off Mm -hmm. um obviously there was a you know a a sort of a spike in the number of people that participated but it's sort of right come back down to some 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 new new normal um and it seems to be operating okay so you know the idea is not necessarily for caps to be there forever, but they could be. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, with caps, you're not only managing harvest, but you're managing the quality of the opportunity to some extent, and you're still allowing people to hunt it every year. Because mm-hmm. once you go to a controlled hunt, then Take nobody back. can yeah. hunt it every year. Right. Uh, with cap, you could still buy it, even though it's a bull tag, you're buying... Uh, you know the the B tag. You, you're you can still buy it every year, and I think that was the in in the creation of the capping system. I think that was one of the impetuses was, and the goals was, you know, people like to hunt where they've hunted forever, and they want you know so so being able to hunt that every year would would be it would be an important facet to building the the, the capping um, sort of formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess my um, I had the conversation with somebody. He's like, "Ah, oh, they need to make sawtooth a draw." It's just like it's a you know uh, they're just mad at the system because they didn't get the tag that year, right? Um, 
And uh, I was like, no, I think it's, I think the population is doing well enough. They just didn't remove the cap and yeah, it's going to flood sawtooth with zone with hunters. But uh, you know, I, like you said, with Smokey Bennett, it's going to be really high for a couple of years and a level back off. And then what people don't realize I saw it firsthand is like hunting elk in the pioneer zone. Those numbers. I mean, once you capped sawtooth, you didn't take away hunters. You just displaced them to other units. Right. So all of a sudden pioneer zone, to me, at least, I don't know if I really looked at the stats too much, but they certainly certainly got busier, um, and in, in surrounding zones around it because you're just pushing hunters to different locations. So it's if the elk population's healthy again, remove the cap and then let things kind of you know stabilize themselves over a couple of years. Yeah, we refer, refer to that phenomenon as squeezing the balloon because you're right, people don't right. stop; they just go somewhere else. And and uh, you know we've over time made you know many decisions sort of in that in that vein of well mm -hmm. if if we do this then this will happen you know all right. these other places will be uh will be impacted and and that's sort of uh you know that's one of the underlying you know issues of hunter crowding is obviously you know as units change in their format from a general to a controlled hunt you know a great example is you know the in 2007, uh, when we were going through the elk planning process, I mean, the deer plan, the mule deer plan process, we, um, you know, one of the statewide goals that people said was, is they want a mixture, they want a combination or a variety of controlled hunts and general hunts, um, sort of in the same regions. And so we, you know, there were the Southeast region had no controlled mule deer hunts. So with the plan was to put in two hunts. Well, the you know the places that we put those hunts in you know lots of consideration was for how many people will this displace you know we want mm -hmm. to displace the least number of people we want to have the best um you know habitat available we want to have the best access um you know and and all and 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 you put all those together and that's how we came up with unit 70 and unit 78 because those would displace the least amount of people and created some amazing mule deer hunting opportunity there. But yeah, there too, the draw odds went from one out of two to now, you know, one in 10 ish. Mm. Yeah. Next one for me, unit 39 mule deer. Like how, what's the status of that? Like I've, um, I haven't done the late archery hunt in quite a few years, but I've just talked to guys that they really feel like it's dwindling and they're seeing a lot less deer, a lot less, mature bucks um again i think you got to be really careful when you hear just one-off stories because i don't think that you know they're hunting one spot in a unit and maybe other areas are great um but that's certainly been a trend that i've been hearing and, and seeing a little bit i think unit 39 um you know winters a tremendous number of deer um you know mm -hmm. they come from all over to winter in unit 39 and you know, I think that, uh, you know, obviously the timing of migration affects that late 39 hunt. Mm -hmm. Obviously in years when we don't have any snow up high, the deer don't come down. They, they, mm -hmm. they don't, they only come if they need to, um, or eventually get there at some point in, in the winter. But, um, you know, I think that affects, uh, obviously, uh, hunting opportunity. I know that, uh, you know, I've, I've gone up and I've never actually hunted unit 39 late, uh, archery hunt, but, uh, I've driven around there, uh, during the hunt. And, uh, there are a lot of people that go out there and, mm -hmm. and, and I've, you know, I still see good deer. I mean, I guess the, one of the, one of the situations that we're sort of in right now is, you know, the winter of 16, 17 was really hard on deer. Uh, we lost um, adult does, which is, you know, usually in an average winter, we don't lose hardly any adult does, but that winter was bad enough that we lost, you know, a, you know, a significant percentage of, not, not a significant, but a, a, a good percentage of adult does that we had on the air. And since then we've sort of been in a rebuilding phase so if you think about it like a, a deer that would have been born in 2017 would be five right now well mm -hmm. there there weren't yeah, any mature, born but... or the ones that were um were, were were fawns didn't survive 
So okay. right now we shouldn't be seeing a lot of what you know people would consider a good heavy you know four by mm. four um yeah we're still sort of in the rebuilding phase and in fact you know it's funny talking to people that go out and hunt that 39 even uh the october hunt you know they're saying man i i'm seeing a lot of two points and i'm like mm -hmm. that, that's good that's and yeah. twos and threes and so i'm i'm hoping that this winter um is is still um we still have a chance to you know have really good survival of mule deer and i think that we will uh you know hopefully be still in a rebuilding phase of uh, getting those older class deer because really uh for a mature mule deer um you know you 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 know buck you you need you need it to be at least four and a half um during hunting season and uh even better if it was six or seven. So mm -hmm. we're missing those age classes. And the other thing about hard winters is not only is the female, if the female survives, she she might um, have a fawn and it might um, be born very light. And we know that from work all over the world that, you know, when fawns are born light, um, they're they if they're a female they produce less offspring and if they're a male they never get as big an antler but the oh, other thing is, is that body condition when an animal goes through a very intense winter like the 16 17 winter you know aka snowmageddon the uh um it's really hard on their body and they might not even if, if they if they indeed weren't pregnant or had a fawned heel they might not even had a offspring the other thing we know about mule deer is that you know body condition really after age two in the perfect body condition of mule deer mule deer should actually have twin fawns up to about age six and then they start to pulse one and two maybe the next year based on our all of our research data but if the body condition isn't good enough then they will only have a single if they have a fawn at all so the thing is, is that there's some long-term effects of bad winters that people don't really think about they think oh it's just going to rebound the next year they're going to produce yeah. a whole bunch of deer but that that doesn't really um there it's more complex than that and uh and obviously you know huge fires droughts um you know those things that affect uh, mule deer habitat definitely affect that long-term body condition, which is so critical to raising big mule deer. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I would say that in my estimation, we're on, we're in the rebuilding phase and, uh, you know, people so um, should be patient and it, it will get better. It will get better. Okay. What's the, the wintering population of 39, which obviously said migrate from plenty of other units around. What is that? You know, is that 10,000 on a bad year? And then it, does it grow to 20,000? Like what's kind of the deer population and then that the kind of the, the ebbs and flows of those numbers over, say, from 2000 to now? Uh, you know, I, honestly, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but okay. characteristically, you know, we're wintering somewhere between eight and 9,000 deer on the Boise front. Um, okay. Uh, and uh, obviously, you know, mule deer have the ability in perfect in the perfect conditions you know to increase at 28 percent uh a year but oftentimes those conditions are not perfect you know obviously there's predation there's natural mortality there's the habitat conditions there's the amount of water um all those things play into uh and reduce you know the fitness of, of mule deer so yeah it, it 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 winters a lot of deer um mm. very impressive numbers uh in fact um you know, we one of the ways that we monitor the habitat and how deer are doing is is looking at fawn weights, and uh, we don't have any fawn weights yet from this year because our capture is coming up here in the next uh, in the next few days uh, or a week or so. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll we'll have an idea of what fawn weights are like and see if they're on on the heavier side of of normal or the lighter side. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, deer that are born light also don't survive as well um 
and uh, and that's really indicative to the mother's condition and indicative to the habitat. So it's um, I I, w- I wish it were simpler. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so your your overall assumption of thirty nine is deer numbers are down because of the rough winter and some environmental factors, uh, and it's just kind of in a rebounding phase at the moment. That's exactly what you captured that well, Steve. Toby, just to hit on uh, more topics while we have you, the first episode we had with you was nearly three years ago. It was episode 215, and we talked uh, the entire episode about wolves in Idaho. In that almost three-year time since then, what would be sort of like a summary or update on the status of wolves and how it's continued to affect uh, maybe deer and elk herds or anything along those topics? Well, I guess, uh, yeah, great question. The the first thing is, is that, you know, obviously in 2019, um, we started doing statewide um, wolf estimates. Um, and uh, so we actually have a bounded estimate for the number of wolves in the state. And um, I think that, uh, which is which is an amazing effort. You know, we're the only state that's ever been able to come up with a bounded um, confidence limit around around an estimate. And we did that with uh, camera traps. Basically, it created a, a su- summer estimate. It's um, um, so, and we're continuing to do that work. Um, in fact, the, the, the teams of uh, folks are out uh, are now engaged in uh, identifying all the photos because we, usually collect somewhere between seven and eight million photos from those cameras um, because not only is there a picture taken on a given time interval but every time something triggers the camera it also takes a picture so um we uh, so that that's pretty amazing and you know i could go into lots of um nerdy detail about how that all happens but that's sort of an update uh, obviously um you know, the since 2019, um, the legislature had made some changes to wolf hunting opportunity and gave people a little bit more um, opportunity, wolf and wolf trapping opportunity. Um, you know, harvests have uh, varied, obviously, and there are places that we see wolves. Um, you know, uh, wolf harvests being higher, and um, obviously ungulates doing better um and other places you know where it's um it's just signals good too but you know we have lots of people have been through the wolf trapping class uh because it's a mandatory uh, wolf trapper education here in idaho which i think um really is is a good thing i think it helps people um sort of get the uh get the basics of uh, the rules behind wolf trapping and uh i think that's that's really helpful. And it also obviously talk about, you know, well, you know, the gear that you use and all those things. So I think that's, that's been pretty helpful. And actually we've had that wolf trapper education program since 2011. So I think we've trained well over 4,000 people um, and put them through the course. And some of those folks have never uh, bought a wolf trap and other ones uh, are become very successful. And trappings, by far that accounts for the most um, harvest of wolves, correct? It has um, um, accounted for more. I mean, we sell about 50,000 wolf tags, uh, hunting tags every year. Um, Some of those are in in sportsman's packs and, uh, you know, (laughs) but yeah, it's the percentage of success is, is pretty low. I mean, obviously wolves are very secretive. They cover huge amounts of country and and so harvests um yeah harvesting them is 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 difficult it's 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 been quite a challenge i think the i think the important point is is that you know um in in some places i think that it's uh hunters and trappers are making a difference and um uh, but the other side of the coin is is that you know you know it's 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 tough to do um you know getting out in this you know with trapping getting out hunting in the winter time it's uh you know not for the faint at heart what is annual wolf harvest numbers on the average right now 
I'd, I'd be spitballing it, but somewhere in the high 400s. Um, okay. Sort of, uh, I think our highest was in the low 500s. And I, I think a long-term average since we've added trapping has been somewhere in that mid 400 range. Toby, going back to the the non-resident uh, tag sales and in particular, the the problems that happened this year, you know, part of what re-prompted us to engage with this podcast with you was people both seeing, um, having people reach out to us directly, and then also just seeing so much chatter online. Um, and some of what was expressed even to us directly was, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm bummed by the outcome, frustrated by the process. I don't know what to do. Uh, and, you know, someone in particular mentioned like, you know, I want to reach out. I want to share my perspective, feedback, suggestions, et cetera, with someone at Idaho Fish and Game, but I have no idea how to contact them. And in my head, I'm like, there's literally email addresses, phone numbers, places to send letters, like everything you need is right there on the website. Like just I, just, I feel like too many people want to talk and complain, but not take action <laughs> when it comes to those things. Um, and so we we talked about that on, on the podcast and suggested people like, if you do truly want to uh, try and share uh, and maybe vocalize some suggestions or your perspective, et cetera, like here are the ways to do that. Is that completely... Uh, I don't want to say ignorant of me, but like too optimistic to say that people actually should write a letter or send an email or make a phone call in relation to topics like this? Or would you encourage people to express that title of fishing game or encourage them to do it in any specific way? No, I think it is important that people express um, their, you know, what, what they're thinking about. I mean, obviously, um, you know, uh it, it's always difficult um when you get 20 you get 20 ideas to fix the same problem every solution is different and you pick one and the other 19 people are usually at some some level unhappy but i think letting us know is super important and obviously i appreciate the fact that you guys have you know passed on you know the countless ways of getting hold of fish and game. And I think it does make a difference. Um, obviously, um, you know, I can, I can, uh, I can think of, uh, you know, ideas that the public has come up with that have, you know, resulted in, in, in good change, um, obviously. And, um, and, and ultimately, you know, we, we're, we, I know fish and game, the commission, you know, we're managing a public resource. We're managing it for the benefit of the people of the state of Idaho. And, uh, you know, I think um, from that standpoint alone, it's super important that, you know, we get people's feedback. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I, I've gotten some feedback, you know, that would probably make my grandmother cringe. And uh, obviously, <laughs> Um, you know, and obviously every time somebody does that, I mean, the, the, the take home message for me is this person is super engaged and passionate about what they, what, what they, what they're talking about, whether they, you know, what language they use or, or whatever, um, you know, that's sort of immaterial to the, to the message. And I always try to, you know, peel out those you know whatever gems are in the message because um because it is important and uh and we highly you know we we rely on on that input and i think that you know getting people involved in the season setting process that's coming up right you know right now i mean obviously we'll be uh we are uh we went through the the moose sheep goat season setting process um you know, public process and, and those uh, petitions are, or those proposals are actually going to the commission at their January meeting. And then the, um, you know, the 2023 big game season setting will be happening at the March meeting. And obviously there'll be public meetings coming up here in January. Uh, 
and and February to uh, get public input on potential changes to the big game seasons um, for 2023. So I think the more people that get involved, the more um, voices that can be heard and the more and and the better job that we can do at managing your resource. Appreciate it. Steve, you have any other questions? Yeah. Um, a few years ago, you guys changed uh, bear harvest to not requiring packing out the meat. What was the thought process behind that? Uh, honestly, I wasn't at that commission meeting. Um, they, um, I know that when that happened, uh, bear harvest changed and also uh, the requirement for taking out the neck and rib meat was also uh, on ungulates was also um, changed at the same time same time and uh, mm-hmm. i i can't really speak to as what the what, what the thesis was behind that um i could try to find that information for you in the mm-hmm. commission uh, minutes but um but i i don't unfortunately don't guess, know yeah my assumption was it was just to increase bear harvest because bear predation on deer and elk was a problem but that was just my assumption do you know on average, how many animals a, a bear, black bear, kills per year? Do they have stats on that? Uh, we don't. Um, I do know that, um, you know, I, 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 when I worked for a, a, a different state agency in a different state, um, I did a study on on black bear predation on moose calves. And, um, you know, definitely there are um, bears that uh, focus in on that sort of uh, opportunities. Mm-hmm. But... You know, mostly the mortality, we do know that the mortality that black bears um, put on ungulates is usually on newborns and it's mm-hmm. usually for two or three weeks of, of life and, and uh, of their first two or three weeks. And there is some more information actually on our website. Uh, we've got a series called The State of Deer and Elk and the latest uh, segment is actually on predation and looking at how predation is split up amongst the predator types um, mm. for deer and elk. So um, that might be, I, I could send you the link to that, but uh, yeah, yeah it's right I, I could find it's, it. It's right on our, uh, right on the front page of, uh, of the website. And, and huh. it's got some pretty cool stats on, on the percentage of mortality based on, you know, we do this um, with adults and, and young or young that are six months old uh, when we first collar them we look at um you know the cause of death uh once once an animal you know see you know dies um the oftentimes the gps collar if it's a gps collar it will tell us where the animal is and that Mm -hmm. it, it has stopped moving so we go in there and investigate it and do a bunch of forensic work at the scene and you can basically um tell i would say close to 100 percent on 80 percent of the animals what actually did it some of them you know, were unknown because there just isn't enough information on what actually killed it but mm-hmm. because sometimes those animals are are salvaged or scavenged by other critters so um, you you don't know yeah. who did it initially, but you know that there were um, there were lots of mouths that were fed uh, in in, yeah. in the in the food chain. Gotcha. White-tailed deer moving south into mule deer populations is that a that certainly seems to be happening over time. Um, am I correct in that? Yeah, white-tailed deer. You know, white-tailed deer actually are the oldest deer in North America. Um, mule deer, black-tailed deer, all descended from white-tailed deer, uh, um, and uh, that genetics has been done. It's pretty pretty interesting stuff. A lot of it was uh, done by, uh, or at least reported by uh, Jim Heffelfinger um, out of Arizona. But yeah, it's um, we we are seeing mule deer moving into more and more country. I, I don't necessarily think it's a problem. Um, obviously, there is some hybridization um, mm-hmm. in in deer. Obviously, you know, white-tailed deer um, have evolved to live in brushier habitats and and do pretty well in sort of urban and you know just side just outside the urban interface, where mule deer don't do as well. 
you know, as as far back as I can remember, um, I start when I started with the agency. I started in the southeast region, and we had white-tailed deer pretty much in every game management unit. We we would see them doing aerial surveys or something, or people would mm-hmm. whitetails. You know, one of the interesting things about whitetails that most people don't understand is in a lot of the state with a regular deer tag, you can actually shoot a whitetail. Um, it's it's open to either. Um, mm-hmm. Whitetail only tags obviously are limited to whitetails only, but but most I, I've had several um, people tell me, yeah, I saw this giant whitetail deer and I had a mule deer tag. I'm, said, I'm like, well, to clarify, what you have is a regular deer tag and that would allow you to hunt either in the in the unit you were in so um <laughs> just a <laughs> note to self yeah. that uh, you know um yeah and you know and, and what we've seen is mostly whitetails living in river bottoms uh in those thick areas uh whereas mule deer mostly are up on the hills so it's some i don't think it's as big an issue as it's uh, not as big an issue gotcha okay uh last one cwd obviously that's brand new up in northernish idaho what's um what's going on there what's current current update so current update is that we've um we're we're still um doing lots of sampling uh the um cwd management zone as um designated by the commission is units 14 and 15 um so far the positives that we've gotten back have all been in unit 14 um mostly in white-tailed deer and we are um doing or trying to do as much surveillance around that cwd management zone to make sure that it hasn't you know we we haven't seen a spread outside of uh, out of unit, unit 14. we don't know um how cwd got there um and i'm I'm, I'm no, but nobody is ready to speculate to that, how it got there. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously trying to figure out and monitor for CWD statewide is still a super important thing. So we're not only monitoring and increased monitoring um, and hunting opportunity in around the CWD management zone, but also, you know, the panhandle of Idaho, where we've got CWD positive animals uh, just across the border in Montana and CWD positive uh, and in the Southeast region where we've got CWD positive animals just across the border in Wyoming. Uh, you know, we're still being very diligent about about um, monitoring those areas for detecting CWD. I know our samples, if you look at pre-detection of CWD, we got about a thousand samples a year statewide. That's and for the last decade or so. And since we've detected CWD, our samples have uh, doubled and uh, actually this year um, so far tripled. So we we took about 3,000 samples so far that I know of um, this year. And a sampling year goes starts actually on July 1st and goes all the way through June 30th. So we're collecting road kills. Uh, we are mm. collecting all suspect animals. You know, if somebody sees a deer acting goofy, um, you know, we'll come out and check it out. Um, uh, you know, I, I think um, people being diligent about it and people, um, you know, getting their animals tested uh, in those places where CWD has a has either a probability of, of of being detected and or you know obviously as a known area is important and we appreciate everybody's efforts in, in doing so um um i was impressed uh that i worked a check station up at uh just outside of riggins this year and i was really impressed at how many people came through the check station and had cwd samples in the in the, in their little sample bag and actually got the right thing um mm-hmm. Because it's not, uh, and we have videos on our website to show people how to do it and what to look for. But I was super impressed. Um, I think everybody that took a CWD sample on their own actually brought in lymph nodes, which was, which was awesome. Because it's it's not, it it takes a little time, and obviously it shows that 
level of engagement and interest from the public uh, in doing so and doing a good job. So that that was that was really awesome. So something you guys are certainly concerned about and being proactive on and just see, is there any states that have done a good example of keeping it in check? Uh, great question, Steve. You know, to my knowledge, the answer, I guess, would be um, sort of, um, you know, obvi- yeah. obviously there are places where, you know, CWD has moved into an area, you know, in the back of the truck, um, you know, mm there are places where it's moved where you know they've walked across the border you know I, I think that there are more experiments going on with cwd and harvest and looking at ways to reduce prevalence so prevalence is the number of infected animals as a proportion to the entire population so there have mm-hmm. they have actually in places where they have have had cwd for for decades they've actually instituted some methodologies to reduce um the prevalence in the population and 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 i think that is a is is helpful our cwd um strategy that we wrote in idaho um i think our first draft was in like 2007 or 2009 and then we've updated it in 2010 2012 2018 and now um you know it's pretty much an annual update of the adding new science and uh and and changing things you know we want to keep prevalence as low as possible and that will reduce the rate of spread if you can keep Mm -hmm. the prevalence low um we 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 know that 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 will reduce the rate of spread and and that's that's sort of the goal the goal here yeah interesting cool well i appreciate you taking the time with us today toby answered a lot of questions and uh, i'm sure plenty of uh, listeners will be more than excited to hear from you that's great steve i appreciate the time and uh yeah if there's anything else i can help answer anytime in the future please let me know Well, we hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as Steve and I did. It was great to catch up with Toby and go through such a wide variety of topics related to hunting in Idaho. As always, guys, reach out to us if you have questions, topic suggestions, guest suggestions, anything like that. Send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Let us know what you want to hear about or who you want to hear from on future episodes. And we are super excited about 2023 and so much to come, not only with the podcast, but with Exo Mountain Gear. So I just want to say thank you, uh, especially those of you who've been listening to this show for years. 2023 is going to be another great year. Excited to share it with you. Thanks for following along. We'll talk to you soon.